And what a blessing it is to have life through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. As we come this morning, we're going to continue to look at the issues surrounding the church family's care for and interaction with one another. Now, last week we saw that it is to be the church family's role and responsibility to protect and provide for the pay and the purity for the pay or the well-being of the elders, overseers, and pastors that give the entirety of their time and life to fulfill the Great Commission by facilitating the flow of the gospel through leading and feeding the, fo- feed, and feeding the flock of God. It is to be the church's responsibility to indeed pro- protect and provide for the pastors who give all of their time and all of their talents and all of their life to investing in the furtherment of the gospel kingdom within this world. We said that the elders who function well in this capacity of oversight are to be rewarded with ample respect and remuneration. Indeed, Steve Brogdon, you can go ask Scott Johnson what remuneration means. Simply means pay, okay? You got that? All right, good. Here's what we're supposed to know. If you want more on that, you can listen to the sermon from last week on on the podcast or the website. But understand this. Here are the two principles that we saw last week. An appropriate work for God's elders were to lead and to feed. And an appropriate honor for God's elders was respect and remuneration. Today we are going to turn our attention from the pastors and their pay to the pastors and their purity. And we are going to focus on the role and responsibility of elders in church leadership to discipline properly those that fall into sin and to select carefully those that would serve the church well. In addition to this being a charge to the elders of the church, the church body ought to listen closely and hear the responsibility of ensuring purity within the life of elders and pastors. And we should never compromise on the standards of purity within the life of those who would lead his church. There is to be accountability for all within the church family, as we saw in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, where we said that the older are to be treated as fathers, and the older men are to be treated as fathers, and the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters. Indeed, we see a family aspect, and the accountability within the church family is to be redemptive and restorative in nature, as the gospel is practiced within the church family. And so we We ask, well, why is there a need for church discipline? Why is there a need? Aren't preachers perfect? Insert your laugh. No, they're not perfect. We are forgiven in the same way that any Christian is forgiven. We have problems in the same way that any Christian has problems. Indeed, here's our principle. It's okay not to be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. We all need help. We need God's grace and God's forgiveness in order that we might stand before him. And so, indeed, pastors have problems as well. In Acts chapter 20, verses 25 through 32, Paul warns the elders of the church at Ephesus that indeed there would be some of them who would fall away from the faith, who would lead others within the congregation astray as they sought to draw them out to follow themselves. Indeed, Paul was not down the road and around the corner and out of sight before some of those very men stood up and did that. In Acts cha- or in First Timothy chapter 1, 
verse 20, Paul identifies Hymenaeus and Alexander as two that have done this. In our culture of compromise today here in America, we have seen many fall, thereby compromising the gospel. We have seen guys like Rick Owsley and Ted Haggard and Jim Swilly and Todd Bentley repeatedly fall from the standard of purity that God has. We don't need to make excuses. We don't need to give explanations. We need to give encouragement that those God calls out to lead the church are to be held to the highest of standards there in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And indeed, when a church leader falls into sin, it always wreaks havoc for the cause of Christ. And the more visible and known the church leader is, the greater harm it does for the gospel movement. Some in the church justify their own sin by saying, well, if those who are such high rapport, if that great strong leader fell, and then indeed, who am I to resist those sins? And from this, divisions arise within the church between those who advocate tolerance and love toward the fallen leader and those labeled as unloving because they call for his removal from public office. The world looks and they mock the whole thing. They shrug their shoulders, they turn their back, and they walk away from the gospel, saying, what hypocrites. What hypocrites. We rightfully deserve it because we say with our lips that we have received Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and yet we show with our lives that we are living any way we want to, except for under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Guys, purity is the standard. Holiness is the standard. Not just for the men of God who would inhabit the pulpits, but for each and every Christian that would fill the pew. And so it's crucial for the church to put godly men into leadership and to make sure that they continue in purity. How can we do that? How can we ever do anything uh, to possibly ensure the church leader does not fall into sin? How can we ensure that these church leaders are good and godly men? What can we do so that we can protect ourselves from these situations? Well, these are the questions that are answered in verses 19 through 25 of 1 Timothy chapter 5. Indeed, some of the elders in Ephesus have fallen into false teaching and ungodly conduct, which always goes with false doctrine, and we are just as likely as they. But for the grace of God. But for the continual submission of our lives before Him and the continual supplication. For him to give us his grace to help us make it through. So this morning, let us consider the pastors and their purity. And let us do so by turning to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 25, and considering together the pastors and their purity. Let's stand and honor the reading of this, God's holy and infallible word. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 begins, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, 
especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that they, the rest also will be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. No longer drink water only, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are quite evident going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise also, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for their sins. Keep yourself free from sin. Father, we pray that indeed in these moments, Father, you would lead us and guide us. Father, as we consider uh, your words here, Father, we ask that your hand would be upon us. And Father, our hearts would be moved to see our sin, Father, and to surrender and submit ourselves, Father, increasingly to you and to become, uh, Father, your image lived out here within this world. Father, we ask now that as we come in these moments, Father, you would, uh, Father, just apply this passage to our hearts and our lives. And Father, that you would mold us and make us, Father, to be strong and vibrant witnesses to your glory and to your grace within this church and within this community. Let us be a family of God who holds high the standards of purity and righteousness and holiness today. Father, we ask, all that we ask now that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. We see here within this passage that the church is the eternal spiritual family of God exercising protection and provision for their pastor, the pastors, their pay, and their purity. The church is the eternal spiritual family of God exercising protection and provision for the pastors, their pay, and their purity. Indeed, managing church leadership uh, is a little bit difficult at times. It's a little bit hairy because everything is not spelled out perfectly for us, but we understand that managing church leadership requires a balance of honor, of respect, of impartiality, and of appropriate discipline. It requires a recognition and appreciation of hard work and caution in appointing people to such a vital task, lest we find ourselves with men who are unqualified. As we come today, we need to understand that indeed it is the church's place as the eternal spiritual family of God to protect and provide for the pastors their pay and their purity. And especially this morning, we are going to be looking at the pastors and their purity. In verses 19 through 21, we see an appropriate, appropriate disciplining for God's elders. An appropriate disciplining for God's elders. Verse 19 begins, and it says, it says there, Do not receive an accusation 
an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Now what Paul is doing is he is moving from a pastor, an elder, an overseer who is worthy of respect and remuneration to those who are worthy of rebuke. He addresses here what we would call grievance procedures when a complaint or accusation comes to Timothy about another elder. This section is like strong medicine. You really hope you never have to use it, but you need to know it's in the medicine cabinet just in case you do. Indeed, some of you have some of those pills in your medicine cabinet, don't you? Some nitrate just in case something happens. You really pray that you don't have to use it. But in case you get sick, you need to know where it is so that you know how to deal with, that, with those things that come. These, the three verses here reveal three different aspects of proper discipline of church leaders. In verse 19, we find the need for factual evidence. In verse 20, the need for public rebuke. And in verse 21, the need for impartiality as this procedure is applied. First of all, in verse 19, there is a need for factual evidence that is, that is indeed not based on hearsay or innuendo, but based on the truth of what is going on. Paul is citing here Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, from the law of Moses, which says, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which is, he has on the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be concerned, confirmed. In Matthew chapter 18, we see Jesus reference the same principle within the practice of church discipline, that indeed it is not to be based on one person who comes with hearsay and innuendo upon which that, that charge is sustained or received, but indeed it is to be tested and verified to see whether the charge is true or false. And it is not to be one person saying it's true. It is to be at least two or three. Paul is dealing with charges here against the leaders of Jesus Christ Church. And this is because they're more liable to false accusations and slander than any others, especially men who preach God's truth, especially men who would bring the word of God to bear, to bear and to apply within the hearts and lives of those who might be tempted to say, well, this is too much to bear. This is too hard. He's picking on me. And so now I'm going to turn the tables and I'm going to talk about him. I'm going to make sure that nobody else listens to him. Indeed, Satan is always trying to discredit the authority of God's word and destroy the work of God's gospel. And one of the most powerful tools in his toolbox is slandering and destroying the ministry and the man that would bring the message of the gospel. If people doubt his integrity, they can easily shrug off his exhortations to godliness. So Satan also stirs up people, uh, people who have been offended by the preaching of God's truth or who are upset because a church leader has had to confront them privately about their sin. They spread half-truths and outright lies to discredit the man and his message and his ministry, and they make sure he'll never work in this town again. Ever heard those words? Let me share some statistics with you. Last year, over 1,700 pastors a month resigned from local churches. Many of them enduring great harm to their, to, or great attacks upon their character. 1,300 pastors a month were removed from local church bodies within the United States last year. 
3,000 pastors a month, enduring many of them charges, unjust charges against their character, being wholeheartedly removed from their ministry without any repercussions or biblical reasons. It's not right, guys. But this is 2011 in America, and we just do whatever we feel like doing. No, we don't. We do what the Word says, and when there is a charge brought, it ought to be verified. It ought to be tested. It ought to be smell-checked. You don't just take the milk out of the refrigerator and drink it, do you? Lest you be surprised. We need to have a sanity check lest we continue to see this, this type of work within, of Satan within the midst of the local church. Five questions for those who come to you and tell you something about the sin in the life of others, particularly, particularly of the pastors and elders of the church. And these come from a man named Bill Gothard. Here are five questions that he says you ought to ask anytime somebody comes and says, you need to know about the sin in this other person's life. The first question you ought to ask, what is the reason you are telling me this? Why are you telling me this? Well, I just wanted you to make it a matter of prayer. No, you didn't. You wanted to gossip about it. You wanted to spread slander and innuendo. And listen, when they come and they tell you, here's what's going on, you need to know about this sin, your first question needs to be, why in the world are you telling me? Second question needs to be, where did you get your information from? Where did it come from? How do you know that this is true? How do you know this is what's going on? The third question, have you gone to those who are directly involved to seek resolution? Not have you come running to the pastor to tell him about all the evil things that the other person is doing. Have you gone to the person and actually dealt with it according to Matthew 18 where the biblical process of church discipline is if you have a problem with your brother or if your brother is in sin, then you need to do what? Go one-on-one. Confront him and pray that he would repent and be restored. If he's not, then you take another. And if he, if he still refuses to repent, you bring it to the elders. And if he still refuses to repent, then you bring it before the entire church body pleading with him to repent and to be restored. Not so that you can beat them up, but so that you can lovingly restore them and see them reconciled with God and with his family. The th- first question is, what is your reason for telling me? Second question, where did you get the information from? The third question, have you gone to those directly involved? The fourth question, have you verified the truthfulness of all the facts? Do you know that what you are telling me is true? And this fifth question is vital. Because I guarantee you this would cut out about 90% of the talking that is done within the church body. And this fifth question is crucial. Can I quote you on this? You know what? A lot of people don't want to be quoted, do they? Praise God, we have not endured those attacks within the church body. We have not seen those attacks, but we can at any time. And we must be prepared with what God says to do. We need to have factual evidence that it is ver- uh, that is verifiable and not hearsay and innuendo. If fa- false accusations are made, then the correction needs to be addressed to who? The accuser. But if the accusations are not false, 
then we are to go on to verse 20 and follow these principles. In verse 20, it says, those who continue in sin, notice that word, what does it say? Continue. Continue in sin. Persist in sin. Rebuke in the presence of all so that they re- the rest also will be fearful of sinning. If the charges are confirmed and they are proven to be true, then it is proper to publicly discipline the church leader who is unrepentant in their sin. Notice I said the church leader who is unrepentant in their sin. The desire of addressing sin with, that, with the elder or pastor is the same as addressing sin within the life of the congregant. And what is it? Repentance and restoration. Not to beat them up. So if an accusation against an elder is not only confirmed by two or three witnesses, but actually is proven, and if the presbyters or elders concerned, though admonished privately, refuse to repent by persisting on in their sin, then there must be a public rebuke that is fitting for the elder. The offenders are to be rebuked publicly and openly so that the others, primarily the elders, but also the congregation as a whole, might be warned against participating in sin. Why? Because sin affects the entirety of the flock, especially when it comes within the life of an elder. Such a public rebuke. Though an effective deterrent must be the last resort, it is a safe rule that private sins should should be dealt with privately and only public sins publicly. Let me go ahead and tell you now, just in case you ever are tempted to think that this pastor or any of your pastors are perfect, we are not perfect men. And if we were to go on with the procedure of each and every time we sin, coming before you and listing out all of our sin, guess what? We would never have a service on Sunday morning, especially since Pastor Doug's on staff. Here, here's the deal. We're not perfect men. There, there's only one perfect man. And his name is Jesus Christ. He has suffered and died to forgive those who sin of their sin. But if we are living in unrepentant sin, in open unrepentant sin, there is not to be a compromise of purity within the church. We are to address those issues properly and see them resolved. Prayerfully, that will come with repentance and a reconciliation to God and a reconciliation to God's church. Timothy must neither listen to frivolous accusations nor refuse to take seriously serious situations. In the area of discipline, he must be scrupulously fair, cautious in accusing, and bold in rebuking as the situation demands. But in verse 21, we move on to the third step here. The matter is to be handled without partiality, without bias and without partiality. The church discipline will be affected only if it is applied impartially. If a man of influence is shown leniency while a less powerful man, less prominent man is treated harshly, much harm will be done to the church and to the gospel witness. Here's the principle that Paul is giving young Timothy. Timothy, don't have any preacher's pets. You remember teacher's pets, don't you? You know, the guys we stuck the signs on the back of as they walked down the hall. Made fun of and picked. Hey, Timothy, don't be tempted to treat one in one way and one in another way just because of their power or prestige or prominence. 
within the church. You treat each individual as they should be treated according to the gospel, offering all the way through forgiveness and grace in the midst of confronting the sin. Why? Because you are doing this in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels. Indeed, God is the ultimate judge who has committed all judgment unto the Son on that day of judgment. Church discipline is carried out in the presence of the Lord and the elect angels are there included to show the awesome picture of God on his holy throne surrounded by the angels. Paul is saying, Timothy, you need to fear God more than you fear any mortal man, no matter how powerful, no matter how prominent, no matter how prestigious, you fear God and do what is right before him and you make sure you don't compromise the gospel. Indeed, I saw an example of this in college. A young man that I grew up with was close in the ministry with. He was a a fellow youth minister in the area where I grew up and as we were in college, there was a young lady in his youth group who decided that as they were telling stories one night, she was going to tell a bigger and better story than the person she had just heard tell a story. And she began to talk about this bigger and better thing, and she began to accuse my close friend of all kinds of heinous actions towards her. All kinds of things. His ministry was destroyed because we lived in a small town. And the saying is true. You can't get rich in a small town because there are too many eyes watching. Rumors and gossip ran rampant. Later on, upon testing the facts of the case, they came to find out that he had been wrongly accused and that she had taken uh, what her father had done to her in the privacy of the home and put it upon my close friend. Guys, you need to be careful what you say about pastors. You need to be careful how you talk about your brothers and sisters in Christ. Because we all need to remember, because we have been forgiven much, we too must forgive. We are to seek the restoration, the right the right living of all of our brothers and sisters, not just some. Church discipline is God's prescription for restoring wayward sheep, maintaining holiness in the flock, and warning the church of sin's destructive power. And we must practice it appropriately. And an appropriate disciplining for elders and pastors flows from hearing the charges, checking the facts, confronting the sin, and chastening any unrepentant sinner. That may remain. What was the process? You hear the charges. You check the facts. You what? You confront the sin. And you chasten the one who is unrepentant. But all the time there is to be a redemptive eye. Within that process. Seeking to restore and to reconcile. With the one who might be in sin. Why? Because it's not above us to fall into sin. Neither is it. 
we move on in verse 22 through 25, we see an appropriate selection of God's elders. We saw an appropriate disciplining of God's elders, but now let us look at an appropriate selection for God's elders. You might say that in verses 19 through 21, we had the remedial course just in case there are any who are sinful and sin-filled within your uh, leadership in your church, then you need to take this action. But notice in verses 22 through 25 that we have prevented protection from faults and flawed teachers an ounce of prevention indeed is worth a pound of cure isn't it wouldn't it be a whole lot better if we'd never had to get to the process where we had someone fall in the public sight indeed if we want to avoid having leaders who fall into sin then we must use caution in appointing them and careful observation in the process of selecting them for that office Now, before we launch into the rest of verses 22 through 25, let me just quickly say in verse 23, uh, Paul gives a practical uh, explanation, a practical help to Timothy. He says, no longer drink water only, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, here's the thing. Paul's not saying you need to go get drunk, Timothy. He's saying, listen, you're drinking water that's coming out of the aqueducts of first century Ephesus. And the fact is, you're getting sick. You're having stomach problems. You're all the time having this. And you need to mix a little bit of wine with the water so that you can take it and drink it. And so that you might not suffer. What he's saying here is that you need to use some some, uh, appropriate logic so that you might not be sick all the time. Take care of your physical body, not just the spiritual body. Indeed, this is not a call, as W.C. Phil says. Uh, he said he used to say, I only keep a bottle around in case of snake bite. And I keep a small snake as well. And in justifying the fact that he wants to drink. E.F. Brown has well stated this passage uh, shows that while total abstinence may be recommended as wise counsel, it is never to be enforced as a religious obligation. Now let me say this and say this very clearly. It is my stance, it is the pastors here at this church stance that we have chosen to abstain, not because we have to, but because it is a good example, especially within this culture where we find so many who have their first drink become alcoholics indeed i want you to understand the principle i have never met the first drunk who never had his first drink guys make sure you are cautious about what you participate in in this world there is not a forbidding of drink having a drink but there is a strong forbidding of drunkenness within those who claim Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Make sure that we never have to approach you and make sure, make sure we never have to approach you and correct you on the issue of drunkenness at any point or abuse of drugs at any point within your life. Because be clear, we will come and address those issues. All right, enough said about that. Verses 22 through 24 and 25. 
Some interpret the laying on of hands to refer to the restoration of a repentant elder. But in light of the usage in the pastoral epistles here in first here in this passage, as well as first Timothy chapter four, verse 14 and second Timothy chapter one, verse six. I believe it refers to the public commissioning of elders for their office. Since some elders have fallen into sin, Timothy may be inclined to hastily appoint others to replace them. But if he did and those men were not well qualified and fell into sin, then Timothy would have a share in their sin. So Paul warns him to keep himself pure. He says, Timothy, I want you to understand, just because there's a crisis and some have fallen away and you have had to remove them from leadership, don't lay hands too hastily on others, commissioning and ordaining them. Why? Because the only standard for preachers is not that they be living and walking. But that's what many churches use, isn't it? That they would just be breathing and walking. Who cares what he does? You've got to care what he does. You've got to care about his character. I also want you to see in this passage uh, that it is the responsibilities of elders, overseers, and pastors to seek out other qualified, uh, other qualified men according to the precepts of 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, to serve the church. Whose responsibility is it? Timothy, I want you to seek out these men. In Titus chapter 1, verse 5, Titus, I want you to appoint elders in every city. It is those who have been set apart and called by God and gifted by God to lead the church well and to oversee the church who are to set apart other men to follow in their stead. Indeed, it is not an issue of power and popularity among the congregation. The issue is love and devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his glorious gospel kingdom. Those who are to be set apart for godly leadership are to be chosen by Timothy and by Titus and they are to be ordained by the laying on of hands of the elders. In other words, the, the elders would come and circle around them and lay hands on them, speak words of wisdom over them, pray for God's leadership and lordship in their life. Indeed, I do believe that the church has a role of affirming and setting apart those who are called to ministry. But listen, it is not for any Tom, Dick, or Harry to become a pastor, an elder, or a preacher. And it needs to be the highest of standards. And this, is, this ministry is for those called of God, gifted by the Holy Spirit, and confirmed by the local church to be ordained by the elders, overseers, and pastors. Paul doesn't say exactly how long this idea should take, how long he should be observed, but it's clear it shouldn't be in a hurry. He shouldn't get saved one week and the next week begin elder training. He should have a steady walk with Christ. He should be shepherding his family. He should be growing in grace. He should be understanding biblical truth. And his practice of his Christian life should be in such a way that everyone who sees him knows that indeed he is a Christian. Don't do this in haste, Timothy. Why? Because you'll share in their sins if you do. See, why would Timothy share 
in their sins, be responsible for their sins because of the union with Jesus Christ that we have in, in the communion of the saints. See, we are brothers and sisters united in Christ in a common family, and we are responsible for one another, and not one of us in the congregation can sin without there being a consequence for the whole congregation. Do you understand that? How you live your life day by day affects each and every person within this church, and it affects most importantly the testimony of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Guys, we cannot say one thing and do another. We must give ourselves wholeheartedly, passionately to living out the gospel because you cannot be divorced from me and I cannot be divorced from you. We are one in Jesus Christ and the family of God cannot be removed or erased. Your testimony affects the testimony of this church, but even more importantly, the testimony of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We live not only for ourselves, but we live for one another. So elders are responsible for one another, but that responsibility extends to mutual accountability in the local church, which is so clear for leaders. This is the familial aspect that is to be cherished and present in every local church. You can't say, well, I'm a member of Adamsville Baptist Church, but who cares how I live? doesn't matter if I smoke and drink and chew or hang around with those who do. No. You're right. We have liberty in Christ. But you know what? We also have the responsibility to be a witness for him. And what did it say? If you love him, you will obey my commandments. And if you're living today in the practice of open immorality loving your sin more than you have loved God's Savior you need to understand that those sins may follow behind you to the judgment seat of Christ and nobody ever may ever know within this world but one day you're going to have to answer for what you are doing and how you are living that nobody else knows and sees because God sees everything And you can be sure of this, Numbers chapter 32, verse 23, your sin will find you out. Your sin will find you out. You may be addicted to drugs or alcohol or the whatever, pornography or adulterous relationships outside of your marriage, whatever the issue is. I want you to understand one thing. It's okay not to be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. And if you choose to love your sin more than you love God's Savior, you need to be aware that on the day you stand before God and give an answer for your time before all of eternity, He is going to look at you and He's going to ask you, what did you do with the life that I have given you? You say, well, I'm, I'm a Christian. No. That passage that says, be sure your sins will find you out, is referring to those who would follow God half-heartedly within this world. You can be assured of this. 
The adulterer may hide his sin until judgment day. The thief may cover up his crimes and not get caught within this world. Wicked hearts, evil thoughts may remain unexposed by men here and now. Hypocrisy may be hidden for years under a pretense of piety, but the sin of half-hearted devotion to God and His glorious gospel will always find you out and the most most inopportune time that you could possibly find to have your sins find you out would be at the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. Don't live another day in partiality. Don't think that your sin affects nobody else. We are one in the bond of love. We are united with Christ through our faith in Him. And therefore, we are united to one another. And as such, we are to live lives that reflect His goodness and His grace. We are to live lives that reflect His holiness and His purity. My questions for, question for you this morning is, what's your relationship like? Have your sins found you out in your life? Have you dealt seriously with the issue that each and every one of us are sinners by nature and by choice? And because of that, we are under the wrath of God. The justice and judgment of God says that the right reward for us is the condemnation of death and hell for all of eternity. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And this morning, if you will just lay your life open before God, Say, Lord, search me. Search me. Show me my sin and don't cover up my sin, but cleanse me of my sin through the work of Jesus Christ. I promise you, he will deliver you. He will cleanse you. He will give you a new life, a new heart, and a new start. Father, as we come this morning, let us be men who are an example. Examples of godliness, examples of grace, Men who do not live for ourselves, but, Father, men who live showing and sharing the work that Christ has done in our hearts by redeeming us from our sins and reconciling us to you and to your family. And, Father, allow us in the midst of this time, Father, to encourage one another, exhort one another to love and good deeds so that, indeed, our testimony and our work would be a strong witness within this church and within this world that, Father, our hearts and our lives are surrendered to you and to you alone. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, I pray they wouldn't wait another day to get right with you. I pray that they would not try to, to make their own way within this world, but, Father, that they would, Father, sing this song of invitation, saying, Lord... Let me not be my own, but let me be yours. Father, we pray today that you would have your own way in our hearts and in our lives through this time of decision. And we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a decision that you'd like to make this morning, I invite you to come.